Hello and welcome to The District, a podcast from The Spectator World. I'm managing editor Matt McDonald. My guest this week is a promising young conservative author whose debut book concerns the takeover of the American media by woke millennials. It's an immensely successful and powerful book, which I spent yesterday night reading. Just kidding, it's Amber. Amber is my guest. But she did write a book, and this is her book. <laughs> the Snowflakes Revolt is uh, has been out for about a week now. Hello, Amber. How's it going? Hi, great. Thanks for having me on the podcast, Matt. <laughs> it's such a privilege. I'm so glad we managed to you know, secure this name after after so so like months of trying. Firstly, I mean, I, I, did, I did read your book last night. Enjoyed it. I think it's particularly relevant because while reading your book, the indictment of Donald Trump finally came down from Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg. And there was a particular kind of media angle I noticed in that story, which I thought we could start by discussing. The first news organizations to report the indictment were the New York Times, the Associated and the Associated Press. And I remember I, I was watching the New York Times' live blog who kind of were fairly excitedly, I mean, neutral news coverage, but excitedly talking about how four officials with knowledge or law enforcement officials had kind of told them and indicated that, that the indictment was coming. And that was prior to the official announcement from Bragg. And I think contemporaneous with Trump's lawyers saying the same thing. My question, you know, similarly as well, this morning, Politico, which I gather is a favorite publication of yours from, from the book, their morning email this morning talked, you know, obviously hours later than the actual scoop, but they wanted to get in playbook that their exchange and their stories were relayed to Politico by law enforcement sources. My question is kind of about, you know, the integrity and that like seeming fairness of grand juries and of trials and of kind of prosecutorial attempts towards the uh, the former president and to any political candidates. If you've got anonymous law enforcement sources tipping off these major mainstream outlets, can you imagine that that would have an impact on public perception of the fairness of the trial and the fairness of any decision that's, that's forthcoming? I would imagine so. I mean, it's kind of like the outcry that occurred when Roger Stone had his home raided by the FBI and the CNN cameras were sort of conveniently ready outside to film the whole thing go down. It just leads to this perception that the media is in bed with the law enforcement sources. And as I talk about in the book, this is a, a phenomenon that's pretty prolific throughout the entire media, where these outlets claim to be speaking truth to power and fighting on behalf of marginalized voices and all of this nonsense, but most of them are getting information directly from the intelligence community, law enforcement sources, and pretty much all of these powerful people that they claim to be taking head on. So for example, the New York Times was one of the outlets that repeated the claim most often that all 17 intelligence agencies or organizations agreed that Russia had meddled in the 2016 election, whereas quite a few of these intelligence organizations have no standing or qualifications to even make that assessment. It turned out that it was only four that actually made that claim. And the original claim actually came from none other than the Clinton campaign. So you had the paper of record in the United States 
repeating a false narrative from a Democratic candidate and certain members of the intelligence community, particularly James Clapper, who wanted to push this specific talking point. So it's become pretty clear that these people who claim to be fighting for the downtrodden are actually quite in bed with some of the most powerful people in our country. In related to that, in one of the kind of teaser or like, I guess, endorsements for your book in the inside cover, Lisa Booth, I think, said that American colleges don't teach journalism anymore. Obviously, you and I are so-called journalists. I don't think either of us did journalism at university at all. What do you think? Like in journalism school, my understanding is, though, as I say, I've never been. They teach you to kind of seek the facts first. And then the story comes afterwards based on like what you've found out. With with many of these stories, it seems like they you, you start with the narrative and then and then try and find the facts that fit them. And many of the biggest screw ups in journalism in the last twenty years, if not longer, in this country come from you know breaches of that uh, you know day one J school rule. I think of you know the Rolling Stone story into the UVA sexual assault, which imploded after you know, they basically sought false testimony. Um, do you think that there's a, potentially a similar thing happening with this? Obviously, we don't know that much about the end Manhattan indictment yet. Mike Lavanati, former Spectator contributor, <laughs> from his Ailesdale commented that he doesn't think that you'll have a, a particularly strong case if it's built entirely on the testimony of Stormy Daniels and Michael Cohen. Do you think that the find facts later uh, will like be kind of act now and then find facts that suit it later approach which has you know affected the media is also you know potentially having a creep into the actions of the government and of these prosecutors yeah i mean it's it's something that's been done throughout basically trump's time as a politician the media back when the russian collusion claim was first made believed it they thought it was true and so they started publishing a whole bunch of materials and source sources that were not credible. So a lot of them ran with the idea that the Steele dossier was this corroborated, infallible intelligence document when it turns out this guy was basically being fed Russian disinformation the entire time. The FBI had apparently questions about Steele's credibility from the get-go, but then verified, so to speak, the dossier through circular reporting in the media that had been fed to people like David Korn from Steele directly. And we only confirmed years later that this entire thing was bogus after the media had used it to sully Trump's reputation and suggest criminality in regards to his campaign's alleged ties with Russia. I think the same thing happened with this Stormy Daniels case. I mean, it's been almost, what, six or seven years at this point that this has been circulating through the news. And the alleged criminality gets downgraded with each uh, passing year. And yet somehow there's this perception from the media stories that Trump's going to be like going to prison for the rest of his life because he made a hush money payment to a porn star. It's, It's definitely, I think, the case in the media now where because you have this level of groupthink, which does come from the fact that journalists more often than ever go to journalism school, which tends to lean liberal, as most prestigious institutes of higher learning do. You have people who come from a background that is more often than not white collar, wealthier, more city-centric, 
and just generally more liberal and left-leaning, particularly socially, and they all get in a newsroom together. There's no one really there to express any level of skepticism against what is the prevailing liberal narrative. So when you're in that kind of environment, it's not ridiculous to think that you would assume the worst of your perceived political opponents, the best of the people that you tend to agree with, and carry out your reporting to reflect that. I One aspect of the book that I enjoyed was your, you know, your Georgetown chapters, where you're recounting how you as a student were very much the kind of on-campus conservative dissident against uh, against kind of, as you describe, like a largely, I mean, you're obviously from a white working class background in rural Maryland. The majority of people at Georgetown were from affluent backgrounds. And I like particularly enjoyed the story, but I remember you t- telling me about early on about how an upper middle class kid had written a diss track about you, a rap. I'd love to play that at the end of the podcast, but I doubt we'll get the clearance rights, but highly recommend that chapter as well. I wanted to revisit a chapter which is, I think, particularly relevant now as you, uh, as you, you know, are going around doing all these interviews for your book. I think we are coming up on the one year anniversary of a particular incident in the book, which I think is your, is it your second or third cancellation? Third, right? <laughs> I can't even keep Maybe track one. anymore. But yeah, I wanted to talk through that because it's it was around this time last year that this was going on. And so I wanted to recap what happened with Cumulus Media and your radio station, uh, WAML, WMAL. Yeah, that's it. And and what happened with, uh, you know, again, campus complaints against you and how the different organizations you work for reacted to them. So do you want to just quickly recap what happened? And then I'll kind of interject with the parts where, you know, the spectator and Cumulus ended up getting involved in differentiating. Yeah, sounds good. So it was March of last year where I was working for WMAL as a part-time radio host. I was on a show called O'Connor and Company, rotating through with several other female co-hosts. And during the State of the Union, I was out to bar trivia with friends, and which you are often at, Matt. So um, I saw Kamala Harris's brown skirt suit outfit, which no one seemed to really like, and thought I would fire off a fun tweet about it, just playing a little fashion police. And I actually had shopped the tweet around the table and everyone agreed that it was funny and fine. Uh, the fashion police at your table, which is your, your quiz team of, of largely gay men. Mostly gay men, yes. Very. Yeah. So, I mean, I thought it was it was good, but... I said, Kamala looks like a UPS employee. What can Brown do for you? Nothing good, apparently. And some very dishonest people on Twitter decided that they were going to cancel me for being a racist because they believed that Brown was not in reference to Kamala's skirt suit, but in reference to her skin color. So they started sending emails and calling my various employers. Although in retrospect, I think that there were only two or three actual complaints. I mean, you can speak more to that, Matt, because you were on the receiving end of any complaints that went to the spectator. Yeah, so we got one email, which I have managed to recover. And I'm particularly happy with So basically, I don't recall seeing the tweet at the time. I don't think many of us 
did because uh, frankly i'm not that interested in what you tweet i'm more interested in what you write for our magazine and website but we did get this email yeah, a few days after the state i think the state of the union was march 2nd and then we yeah got- and let me just if i can interject here what was interesting is that the tweet was not a problem at first it was only after i started speaking out against the transing of kids and against the idea of putting them through hormone treatment or surgery, cross-sex surgery, that the trans lobby seized on the Kamala tweet and started making it an issue. Got it. So I think the State of the Union would have been around like March 1st or 2nd of last year of 2022. And then on March 5th, which is the Saturday, an email is sent to the basically all of the emails that are on the spectators kind of contact us page which is my email the publisher zach's email and the kind of general editor email as well this email reads good morning and this i i love how formal uh, people try to sound when they complain and are making up a complaint but uh, this really comes across when you kind of hear it good morning I'm writing for a very unfortunate reason to contact fellow friends who have been subscribed to The Spectator and ask them to cancel all subscriptions with The Spectator. I am a strong supporter of free speech. However, Amber Athey is a vile, bitter, hateful woman. I've read many Twitter posts of Miss Athey and she comes across as as an angry, bitter, racist, hateful person. So far, so true, I mean. (laughs) yeah where's the lie i guess (laughs) yeah it's quite unfortunate as i read the spectator as many friends of mine are subscribers and having recently moved into my new home i had been looking to renew subscriptions as well as find different periodicals to subscribe to a publication who pays a disgusting racist young woman such as Ms. athy will have no place in my home and in my life and the lives of good people i am friends with I wish you all well. Your publication is top-notch. Hopefully you will do the right thing and dismiss this petulant child from your staff. Thank you for your time. I won't say his name or email address, but his, it's David. We'll call him David because that's the pseudonym by this by which this person emailed. A few factual points, Festo. So you're not a racist, right? No. Just to double check. Okay. Thank um, you for checking. I appreciate that. First, first time I've asked that question. And, you know, <laughs> the, 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 now that's a lie. <laughs> <laughs> This email comes to the three of us. I see it. I uh, responded. I, I wouldn't. I didn't. So I did, my my background of this also. I, I admit my ignorance. I didn't know like the UPS slogan. I didn't really understand the the tweet or the joke. It is not not necessarily one for me. But I you know I messaged you and say someone has emailed me asking for you to be fired. They claim to be a subscriber, and then I did the logical thing, which is if they are a subscriber, I'm interested. Like I like our subscribers, and I want them to stay subscribed. So I say, well, let's check this guy's email address in our database. And so Zach looks through our databases and reveals that this person, no one with that email address has ever subscribed to us or signed up to any of our email newsletters. So not only have they never been a paying subscriber, they have never, you know, hit our data wall. They've never subscribed to any of our newsletters. So this person is obviously a complete charlatan who has made up. I mean, if, if if it wasn't obvious from the content, She's made up everything that that is in the, in that email, and so that you know that kind of credibility check took our organization all of fifteen minutes. I will say, you know, clarified that you know in your initial tweet you were talking about her outfit. Looked looked for her this person's user address, could see that they were obviously just a pretender, and then ignored it and moved on. 
that is how we dealt with that uh, internal that internally at the Spectator. Now, your radio show and the the company behind it dealt with it somewhat differently. Tell us about that. Right. So they apparently also received a couple of emails around the same time that the Spectator did. And I presume similarly from people who would never listen to WMAL because it is obviously a very right wing radio program. I mean, they hosted the Rush Limbaugh show for decades. So the idea that someone who had a problem with a joke about Kamala's outfit would be tuning in seemed somewhat ludicrous. But the following Wednesday, I was on air with Larry O'Connor, had a normal day, normal show, drove home from the studio in northwestern D.C., walked through my door, and about maybe 30 minutes later, got a phone call from these two individuals with Cumulus Media, which is the parent company of WMAL. is Kristen Fancellas, who is a HR professional. And then Jeff Bowden, he was the station manager. And they said that they had, not that they had not, I mean, their focus wasn't on the fact that they had received complaints. They actually said that they believed the tweet was racist. And so they weren't firing me because of outside pressure. They were firing me because they were made aware of the tweet, believed that it was racist, and were going to fire me for violating their social media policy. And they let me go right there. And I was somewhat shell-shocked and asked if I could have the opportunity at least to leave a parting statement since I didn't even get to explain the tweet or anything surrounding the situation. And I basically went on, I think, like a three-minute rant about how they're caving to cancel culture and this is everything we rail against on the radio. And I asked them, I explained the tweet and asked them if they actually thought it was racist and they kind of hemmed and hauled and wouldn't answer. And that was kind of it. I, no one else at the, at the station or on the show knew that this was happening. Apparently I called some of the other um, hosts on WMAL and they were similarly shocked and immediately went to work trying to see if they could get me back on air, but we were not successful. So a month after I was fired, I thought, all right, if this is how it's going to be, and you want to do this to a member of your team, then I think everyone should know why I'm not on the radio anymore. Because I had started getting questions from people who were asking, you know, why aren't you on O'Connor and Company? What's going on? So I, I went public and I explained the issue and why Cumulus fired me. And I think everyone had a similar reaction to me, which was this, just this is generally absurd. So just to quote a snip, the relevant snippet from your book, you say, you know, left-wing activist organizations like Media Matters literally pay people to listen to conservative programming, to manipulate and misrepresent our words, and to launch boycotts to get us off the air. If a media company justified their talent every time this happens, these activists would be able to single-handedly destroy conservative media with a few well-placed articles. I think that's, that, that pretty, pretty, puts it pretty well. I think that this, this slight difference between our, our organization and theirs is Humanist Media is a conservative. It, they, they, the radio stations there are like are conservative, happily brand themselves at that. Whereas the spectators, I, I, you know, we publish conservatives. We have conservative writers and stuff. But you know, I, I would argue that our response to that was kind of more classically liberal in the interest of free speech and based on 
you know, not just standing up to cancel culture, cancel safe, but assessing a complaint on its merits and then kind of making a judgment about, well, look, do we police, we police the, the content that we publish and not necessarily people's, like, we don't take editor- editorial responsibility for people's tweets. Now, you, you uncover something in the book as well, which I think is interesting, um, about the background uh, of this, you know, this conservative radio station's board and who it's who it consists of. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I started digging into who these people actually are because I heard some rumors about the CEO, Mary Berner, and her political leanings, and everyone was kind of telling me, well, it's not a really surprise, you know, Mary Berner's super liberal. Someone told me at one point that she had a transgender child, which I have never been able to confirm, but I figured, all right, let's see who these people are, because at this point, I was under the impression that Cumulus was mostly conservative because they're one of the largest hosts of conservative radio programs in the country. And that turned out not to be the case. This turned out to be just like any other major corporation with a board made up of people who either are not principled or don't have conservative principles, at least. So I found out that Mary Berner, who earns almost $7 million a year, by the way, by hosting conservative content, is a major Democratic donor. And her biggest donation was in 2018 when she gave $20,500 to the Human Rights Campaign's Equality Votes Pack. And if you're not familiar with the Human Rights Campaign, it's basically the largest uh, queer advocacy group in the country. And this was a trend that held throughout the rest of the board. Tom Castro is on the Cumulus Media Board, and he is actually a director at Media Matters. So Interesting conflict of interest there where you have an organization that in its history was trying to destroy people who worked for Cumulus Media now sitting on the Cumulus Media board. And thanks to some reporting from my friend Andrew Kerr, I found out as well that the number of articles on Media Matters about Cumulus radio hosts declined significantly after Tom Castro joined the board. So um, seems to be a little quid pro quo there. Also on the board is Matthew Blank, who was the interim CEO of AMC. He gave $120,000 to Democrats over 10 years, including thousands to Ms. Kamala Harris, the subject of my tweet. Joan Gilman gave $18,000 to Democrats between 2016 and 2022. David Baum gave $8,000 to Democrats between 2018 and 2021. Brian Kushner was pretty pretty low in terms of donations. He just gave $250 to a Democrat back in 2002, pretty apolitical. And then there was one person on the board, Andy Hobson, who was split politically and gave donations to both Democrats and Republicans. So of all of the current Cumulus board members, all seven of them, six of them donated exclusively to Democrats. So, I mean, looking at that, it's like, oh, okay, well, so they probably got the email I didn't care to investigate because they were receiving complaints from people that they are sympathetic to or that they would tend to agree with. So naturally, their word's going to be taken over mine. Right. They're second guessing what their board members think and, and therefore they're trying to sanitize and, and, and make safe. You know, they, they I mean, I suppose that's that's one question is like, what business do you do these board members have, you know, backing a radio like a a group of radio stations which you know broadcast things that fundamentally they 
completely disagree with and are at odds with all of their values but then i suppose that's the answer isn't it it's just business it's amorality it's all it's all business and the other interesting part of this is that all of these board members joined the company in 2018 after it had declared bankruptcy so this was clearly a business related shakeup and something that happened fairly recently i find it unlikely that a show like the Rush Limbaugh show would have been brought on to Cumulus after 2018 based on this board makeup. So I think that this is, we haven't really seen the effects yet of, of what this, this board is going to do to the company, but clearly it's nothing good if you're a conservative radio host. Well, I'm very glad that the spectator hasn't fired you yet. And I think, yeah, it's a, Happy anniversary to the whole shebang. I think it's is a telling it's a telling little anecdote in a a great debut book, which I think you should be very proud of, and which we will be sure to stick a, a link to in the uh, post for this podcast. But Amber, thank you so much for your time, and uh, we look forward to having you back on when your next book is out, and not before. <laughs> okay, deal. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the District. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe to our channel. You can find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. To read more content on similar topics, visit thespectator.com.